This is an ABC podcast. Across Australia, you're listening to Breakfast on RN. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. For many Australians, it's going to be another anxious day with the Reserve Bank expected to deliver a tenth straight interest rate hike. And it may not be the last increase as the bank tries to bring down inflation. So how are people coping with the multiple rises and what choices are they making to get by? Isabel Masali prepared this report. At Perth Sculpture by the Sea Exhibition, the Whisper Tree is a hit. Small speakers dangle from its branches, playing messages that have just been recorded by passers-by. Um, just be happy and always smile. Another woman records the message Hakuna Matata, made famous by The Lion King. It means no worries, but for many Australians right now, that's not the case. Everything costs more, and I don't think that the banks have it right, because at the end of the day, all what I'm doing is getting more money for the banks, and nothing's going back to the people. She counts herself lucky because she's just a few years away from paying off her mortgage, but money's still tight. I try to yes, save as much as I can and just minimise my expenses, like in electricity, so I can be keeping up for whatever the bank decides to do. She, Howe and his family own homes in Sydney and Canberra, and they also bought a house in Perth when they moved here, just before interest rates began to climb. He's put up the rent for his tenants and he's also paying an extra $500 a week on his home loans. We increased, but not as high as the interest rate, yeah. Have you considered selling? We are thinking about that right now, maybe in the second half of the year. We still think the weather, the interest rate will stay flat for a while. But for now, they're cutting back in other ways. We were planning a lot of travels overseas, but the interest rate was higher. I think we had to cancel all the plans to travel to overseas. Yeah, basically that's the big impact. And also, I think, um, uh, other intimate, we have cut a little bit as well. Yeah, that's uh, basically the story. Right now, it's still going higher, so we have to have save a little bit in the pockets to increase the future further increase. Another woman I meet under the whisper tree is Maria, who's on a fixed-rate loan until November. Oh, very stressful. Very stressful at the moment. Uh, I am the only source of income in my family so it's already too stressful and uh, approaching November it's getting even more. As she braces for her repayments to rise she's also waiting for the cost of living to come down. So for now she's scaled back on her daughter's sporting commitments. Oh yes we have to give up of a lot of things. At the moment we are trying to stick to the basics so she has to give up karate, but we, she still attend basketball and swimming. Anything else that you have to consider going into November? How else are you going to cut things back? Trying to find an extra job for weekends. <laughs> That's the only thing that I can figure it out at the moment. Perth resident Maria ending that report by Isabel Masali. One respected economist, Westpac's Bill Evans, says many are doing it tough right now, but he expects the Reserve Bank might be forced to start cutting rates early next year if, and only if, inflation falls dramatically this year to around 4% by Christmas. Bill Evans spoke with our senior business correspondent, Peter Ryan. 
Without a doubt, they'll be taking notice of what's happened with the national accounts, where the economy grew by 0.5%. We're all expecting it to be around 0.8%. So clearly the slowdown that we're expecting is coming to pass a little earlier. But I still believe that they have their main objective, which is to ensure that inflation comes down this year and they need to stay the course. So they can't take their foot off the pedal just yet and not even signal that there might be a pause? No, I don't think that they will be wanting to send the signal that it's going to, they're going to pause in April. Uh, I think that they'll be wanting to deliver on those two rate hikes that they talked about in February, and that'll be March, April. But they'll leave the situation open for May, because in May you'll get another update on inflation, and they'll have a chance to review their, their forecasts. And the key forecast is that they don't believe that the inflation will get in the 2 to 3% band until mid-2025. Then you can't pause. But there's no doubt that at the moment these rate rises really are hurting average Australians, particularly people with average to large mortgages. There's no doubt about that. That's their objective, to slow down demand. Uh, we think inflation will come down to 4% by the end of this year, uh, and you won't get that unless demand is slowed substantially, and that's their objective. The Reserve Bank's got its job to do with controlling inflation, but what about fiscal policy? What could we expect in the May budget in terms of some relief for households? I think there would be targeted relief for households, and I think there's a very strong argument that targeted support for certain parts of the economy given the pain that is that we've seen now emerging, is entirely justifiable. My view is that the Reserve Bank will get the demand story down enough to get the inflation story in, uh, in into line, and the government needs to be focusing on supporting some of these people who are under extreme stress. So can we expect to see rate cuts by the end of this year or next year? If we get the fall in inflation to 4%, the scope will be there to cut rates in the first quarter of 2024. And that's why I think more pain now, which will give us much more chance of getting those targets, will be rewarded with the opportunity to provide some relief next year. Westpac Chief Economist Bill Evans speaking there with Peter Ryan. Victorians have lost nearly $2 billion this financial year on the state's 27,000 poker machines. It's why Premier Daniel Andrews is under mounting pressure to follow New South Wales and Tasmania's lead and change the rules around poker machines in pubs and clubs. More than a quarter of the losses come from just five council areas in Melbourne. Victorian political reporter Richard Willingham has more. There are eight pokies venues within five minutes' drive of Bree Hughes' house in Melbourne's western suburbs. It's just ridiculous how many readily available it is. Her poker machine problems cost her tens of thousands of dollars and her freedom. It's been, I've, I've been a drug addict and the hold that gambling has had on me far surpasses drugs. If given half the chance it will suck you in and it will suck you dry and your family and you will do things that you never could have imagined that you would have ever been able to do to continue to play. Brie Hughes turned to crime to fuel her addiction. She was convicted of fraud offences and spent 10 months in prison. I don't think I would have gone to prison if it wasn't for gambling. She wants Victoria to follow Tasmania's lead and introduce mandatory pre-commitment. That's a system that forces all punters to preset a maximum loss limit before they play. That system will be enforced for pokies at Melbourne's Crown Casino as a result of the Royal Commission, but it won't apply to 27,000 pokies in Victorian pubs and clubs. Spurred by a finding from the New South Wales Crime Commission that pokies were a haven for money laundering, Premier Dominic Perrottet is making all of his state's pokies cashless in the next five years. 
Victoria Police also say local poker machines are used by organised crime for money laundering. Well, we call on the Victorian government to seize the national momentum. That's Joseph Harwell, the Labor Mayor of Hume in Melbourne's outer north. He's part of a group of councils calling on Premier Daniel Andrews to follow New South Wales' lead. I remember this from day one on the job as a municipal councillor at 10am in, in the suburbs of Melbourne, uh, seeing members of our multicultural community, refugees, new arrivals standing outside waiting to get into a venue. When you see that at 10am, you know that there is a problem that is widespread in the community and it's impacting the most vulnerable the most. Victoria's Treasury will rake in $1.2 billion in pokies taxes this year. But Councillor Virginia Tarkos from Brimbank in Melbourne's western suburbs says that comes at considerable social cost. Our community is paying a very heavy price and has been for the last decade uh, with um, mental health issues, with poverty, generational poverty. People aren't able to break the cycle because of the proximity of these gambling um, you know, venues so close to their homes. Already this year, Brimbank residents have lost $104 million more than any other council area. I think that it's incumbent on every government to ensure that their community is free of harm. There is private support amongst Andrews government MPs for poker machine reform. A spokeswoman for the Victorian government says it notes the various motions moved by respective councils and that it would continue to monitor pokies arrangements to ensure Victoria has appropriate regulatory settings, adding that the government also reserves the right to make further changes. Richard William reporting there. You're listening to AM and it's 19 past seven. Coming up on Iron Breakfast after 7.30, Patricia Carvelis interviews the Energy and Climate Change Minister, Chris Bowen. To Ukraine now and Russian mercenaries who are trying to seize the city of Bakhmut have slammed military chiefs in Moscow. They say they're not getting the ammunition they need. They've warned the front line could collapse if they're forced to pull back. Despite those comments, the Russian-backed forces are believed to be in a strong position. The US military is already discussing a potential Ukrainian retreat. Europe correspondent Nick Dole reports. What a difference a few days can make. On Friday, the head of Russia's Wagner mercenary group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, stood on a rooftop outside Bakhmut and claimed his forces would seize the Ukrainian city within 48 hours. But a new video since emerged of Prigozhin sitting in the dark, raging against the Russian military, accusing its commanders of failing his men as they attempt to give Moscow a much-needed win. He says they're still waiting for ammunition. If Wagner retreats from Bakhmut now, the whole front line will collapse, he says. Today, Wagner is the glue holding it together. We're pulling in the whole Ukrainian army, grinding them up and destroying them. But in a sign of the competition and hostility within the Russian leadership, he worries his private army might be made a scapegoat if the so-called special military operation fails. If we retreat, then we'll go down in history forever as the people who've taken the main step towards losing the war. The video was posted over the weekend, but it's unclear when it was filmed or whether it accurately depicts the situation on the ground in Bakhmut. Most intelligence suggests Russia's making gains, although US Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin says they're coming at a heavy cost. Uh, what I do see on a daily basis is the Russians continuing to pour in uh, a lot of ill-trained and ill-equipped troops, and uh, those troops are very quickly meeting their demise. 
But Ukrainian troops are also coming under heavy fire, and while the government doesn't release casualty figures, President Zelensky says his country's current battles in the Donbass are painful and challenging. Lloyd Austin says he can't predict what'll happen, but he thinks if Ukraine were to pull out from Bakhmut, it could shore up its positions further west and prepare for a counterattack. I, I think it's more of a symbolic value than it is uh, strategic and operational value. So the fall of Bakhmut won't necessarily mean that uh, that uh, the Russians are have changed the tide of uh, the tide of this fight. Having spent months fighting to defend the eastern city, President Zelensky and his commanders say their troops will stay and fight. But Army spokesman Mikita Shandiba says the last few days have been especially tough. The enemy's assaults happen all the time, he says. They had tried to capture our positions in small groups, but in the past couple of days the size of those groups has increased. It's now about 30 people trying to break through our defences at a time. So far, they've failed. Russian forces believe they could be on the verge of victory in Bakhmut. They're likely to keep pushing until they run out of ammunition or run out of troops. Nick Dole reporting. Homelessness services say they may be forced to lay off 650 support workers because of uncertainty around federal government funding after June. 230 organisations have written a letter to the Housing and Homelessness Minister, Julian Collins, saying they're facing a $65 million funding black hole. The warning comes as the organisations face soaring demand for help, as any guest reports. In the Victorian city of Ballarat, Stacey Park works on the front lines of Australia's housing crisis. What we're finding at the moment is people are having to resort to sleeping rough a lot sooner. The charity worker leads Uniting Ballarat's Street to Home program, which provides food, blankets and clothing to the homeless, while trying to help them get a roof over their head. And we're inundated, so we're exceptionally busy and really struggling to keep up with demand. We've got more people sleeping rough than ever before and with lack of housing options where we're not getting the outcomes or or helping them move into stable accommodation um, as often as we would like. And she's worried about funding uncertainty, with a federal government wage subsidy for the sector due to run out in June. Without this funding, you know, we won't have as many people being able to go out on the streets and support people who are sleeping rough and being that contact back into the community and ensuring people are still safe. Kate Colvin, Chief Executive of Homelessness Australia, says the subsidy needs to be extended for another 12 months while the federal government, states and territories work on a national housing and homelessness plan. So this is a funding cut of $65 million to homeless services around the country Um, and uh, without those resources, the only way that homeless services will be able to um, keep the doors open is by letting Um, around 650 staff go because without the resources to pay staff wages, they simply can't um, continue to employ them. And for people struggling for housing, she says life will get harder. Absolutely, it will mean more people on the streets because if they're coming through the door and there's no one there to help them and they don't have anywhere to stay, then well, they don't have anywhere to stay, do they? So they'll be uh, in their car or on the street, which is really shocking. 
A spokesperson for the Federal Housing and Homelessness Minister, Julie Collins, says the government is seeking an extension of the current housing and homeless agreement with states and territories to support the transition to a new housing plan. Nevertheless, Kate Colvin is still going to deliver a letter to the minister calling for funding certainty. Look, we want the government to continue at least the levels of funding that they've Um, had for homeless services. I mean, they really need to be increasing funding to meet this increased need, Um, certainly not cutting it because it's so important for people who are fleeing violence or, you know, you've got young people, um, teenagers who can't live safely at home. They need help at this time, not, not to have less help. The federal government also says it's making the single biggest investment in social and affordable housing in more than a decade. It includes a planned $10 billion housing fund and commitments from federal, state and territory governments to build 55,000 social and affordable homes over the next five years. Annie Guest reporting. Despite trade wars, floods and worker shortages, Australian farmers have grown a record-breaking $90 billion worth of food and fibre this financial year. The average cropping farm now has an annual income of $665,000. But as national rural reporter Cass Sullivan found, this could be as good as it gets for some time. It's one of the busiest times of the year on this farm near Crookwell in the southern tablelands of New South Wales. And thousands of Bob Love's sheep are being shorn. Yeah, I think it's going very well. It'd be nice to have a, a bit more rain at the present time to green things up a bit, but it's that time of the year. So, Despite the dry, Bob Love says it's boom time for the farm sector. I think uh, the way things are going at the moment, I think it's, uh, it's, it's going to be a good period for farming. In dollar terms, it's never been better, according to the government's commodity forecaster, Abares. Its chief economist is Jared Greenville. This year, the gross value of agricultural production is set to hit a record of $90 billion. So it's well above... Um, what we've seen in the past and higher than the record we hit last year of $88 billion. The exceptional value has been driven by record winter crops like wheat, barley and canola, up 4 million tonnes across the country on last year's previous record. We've got the largest area ever planted to winter crops, also the largest area of largest amount of production at 67 million tonnes, um, records in Western Australia, South Australia and Victoria. Good growing conditions have combined with strong prices for horticulture, red meat, dairy and fibre. The value of agricultural exports is now on track to bring in $75 billion of trade in 2022-23. It also means healthy incomes for farmers. The average broadacre farmer would have earned over the last year around $371,000. For dairy farmers, the average was even higher at $390,000. It's the third record-breaking year for Australian agricultural production. But Jared Greenville says don't expect it'll happen again next financial year. Free run of good seasons only happened twice, as far as we can see looking back, once in the 90s and once in the, in the 70s. Um, so it's more likely that we'll shift to a, a more normal but harder environment um, to work in. And so in terms of production outcomes, it's likely for the next couple of years that this is the high watermark. Um, and what will grow sector value going forward will have to be price and the prices that we get, and that's where international markets will be very important. Bob Love remains optimistic. It'll have its ups and downs, as it always does, but I think the next decade in farming is going to be really, uh, really good. 
Grazier, Bob Love, ending Kath Sullivan's report, and that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. With the growing cost of living, we'd all love to pay less in income tax. So why is there a growing number of people arguing against the so-called Stage 3 tax cuts? Today, the host of Radio National Breakfast, Patricia Carvelis, explains the biggest shake-up to income tax in decades and how the wealthier you are, the better you'll do. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.